Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Debbie Vu is the founder of Ironworks Media, a media collective that specializes in creating promotional documentary style content for nonprofits and mission driven small businesses. In this episode, we discuss the aspirations and growth of Ironworks as a business and collective, Debbie's role as founder, leader, mentor, and visionary, and her own narrative films and creative process. As a side note, I first heard Debbie Vu's name mentioned by actor Maxine Elwa way back in episode 34, when Maxine talked about her film Roll Pin Punch, written and directed by Debbie. Several months after that, I found myself enjoying a coffee at a cafe with my kids and eavesdropping a little, like you do, when I heard someone at a nearby table talking about the films she was making. After listening for a while, I walked up to her, handed her my business card, and asked her to be on the podcast. Turns out the person I was eavesdropping on was Debbie Vu. It's a small world, right? Debbie Vu is the founder of Ironworks Media and an award-winning documentary and narrative filmmaker based in Durham, North Carolina. She started her filmmaking journey while studying at UNC Chapel Hill with a double major in electronic journalism and media studies and production. Her life's mission is to share untold stories and provide a platform for leaders and members of underrepresented communities. She also wants to create shortcuts for her team members and anyone else she encounters by giving life advice, creating paid filmmaking opportunities, and mentoring others. This is a wide-ranging conversation, so fasten your seatbelts and enjoy the episode. Hi, Debbie. Hello. Thank you so much for being here today. I would like to start talking about Ironworks Media, which is the company that you founded in 2017. Yes. And Ironworks Media specializes in creating promotional documentary style content for nonprofit organizations and mission-driven small businesses. What is the origin story of Ironworks? Yeah, back in 2014, I produced my first ever short film. It was a narrative piece about a young woman going through a breakup, and she was haunted by her ex-boyfriend and constant reminders of him. And she's trying to go on a first date with this guy, and it just fails miserably. And so we shot a scene in the subway in New York City, and that was two hours of whirlwind experience, and we were... We weren't supposed to be there. I yeah. think there's, you know, there's rules and regulations against filming there, but we kind of found like a quiet spot and um, just rode back and forth mm. on this subway. And it was me and my cinematographer friend. He's very talented. And we pulled this off. And I remember thinking iron sharpens iron. And so that kind of, that's where the name came from. And the X in Ironworks, that's very crucial. Mm-hmm. It's very symmetrical. But one of my biggest clients, he introduced my business as Ironworks, I-R-O-N-W-O-R-X. Branding it that way, it was easier to have name recognition. The name 
was inspired by the idea that iron sharpens iron. And a lot of people attach themselves to that saying, whether it's biblical or just the idea. I think it's really impressive. And the idea of bringing people together and honing and shaping each other and learning from each other. Rather than being segmented and starting your own business, why not come together under the umbrella of Ironworks Media? I am the founder, I am the director, but I am a team member as well. Mm. Um, I've been carrying all these different projects on my own as a one-woman band. And I realized that I need to stop doing things on my own because there are people out there that are more experienced and want to gain more experience on, let's say, editing, Mm -hmm. video editing. I'm really good at it, but I don't want to do it. And I don't want to put in the work. I put in hours and hours and hours doing things on my own. Um, So I started Ironworks because I wanted to give people opportunities of things that I didn't want to do, Mm -hmm. as well as providing paid filmmaking opportunities. I think that's really crucial in a budding and aspiring filmmaker is getting paid for the work that they do. If they do any work independently, so if they're filming B-roll, which is footage that you put on top of interviews, if they're filming that themselves, or if I'm giving them assistant editing work, then they get paid. If we're doing the work together, they will not be paid, but they get that experience and they get to learn shortcuts like keyboard shortcuts Mm -hmm. and editing. So it slims and it streamlines their process. And so my hope is to inspire and mentor local filmmakers and provide them a space that they can grow and learn. Our videos are always, always increasing in production quality. I'm always striving to do more and more and more. We need to be elevating each other and not competing, right? I think that's like our initial reaction whenever we have a business. We're thinking, oh, we're going to compete against them. We have to be better. We have to, we have to do better. I was partnered with ReCity Network, which is a co-working space geared towards nonprofits and small businesses. And so they had that perfect group of people. That was my niche. That was my target clients. And another media group actually approached ReCity for space. You know, hearing about this, naturally, we would think, okay, we're competing. You know, we're competing for these different, for these exact clients. And when I actually met them, we dispelled that. We immediately said, you're not my competition. Mm. We are storytellers and why not collaborate? And so we were able to collaborate with them by filming an event, Mm -hmm. um, the Rotary Conference. So the Rotary Conference was a really great opportunity for us to get exposure. Mm -hmm. Um, the, The Rotary clubs are there to volunteer and do good in the world. And they have the financial means to do that. And so getting access to these Rotary Clubs, I was able to connect with Matthew Kane. And he is the forerunner of the Launch My City movement, which is entrepreneur programs that can be launched anywhere in the world. My hope is to create a full-length documentary. And I talked to Matthew about it. And he didn't know what full-frame the full frame documentary Uh film festival was. So he was like, Oh, excuse me. I don't really know what that means. And so educating him on those experiences. And so I applied for the firelight documentary fellowship, and hopefully that will gain me access to funding and mentoring opportunities. But we were able to pull together 
pro bono all these stories from Launch Raleigh and Launch Durham. Oh, wonderful. Which are two of the many programs that are happening across the world. And so my hope is to go nationally with this project, to go internationally, but I need that funding. I need airfare. I need accommodations. I need a rental car just to get around. My hope is to get that fellowship. And if it doesn't happen, that's okay. We're very scrappy. That's the thing about Ironworks. Mm -hmm. We do not work with huge budgets, but we want to. That's the goal, right? Right. Is to get enough funding so we can transfer funds from our documentary unit into our narrative production company. Mm -hmm. And with our narrative work, we have people on our team that have passion projects that have these ideas in their heads. And what I want to do is produce that and help them get the experience and help them get content for their reels, because that's how they're going to get work. My hope is that I can launch these people into a career, whether or not they stay with us. I think that's really important to elevate those voices and elevate this diversity that I've been able to recruit. Mm -hmm. Can we go back a little bit and talk about who the members of the collective are? Because you often talk about Ironworks Media as a collective. How do you find, are they interns? what, What do you call them and where do they come from, these folks? Our very first intern was the spring semester of 2018. And I had one intern. This past academic year, at the most, I had eight interns. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah, and they're all coming from universities, so local universities, especially UNC Chapel Hill, because I'm alum there, and so I have connections still in that department. But recently, we have been connecting with more experienced filmmakers, and so we call them associates. So rather than being an intern, mm-hmm. they're an associate, so they get access to more paid filmmaking opportunities. So we still want to work closely with students. But what I'm realizing is I need people who are stronger, who are more experienced, so we can carry the workload Mm -hmm. that we're getting. This summer, I have four projects that are all lined up in July. And so it's been stressful. But you know, it's been a great wake up call realizing that I need to streamline the process. And I need to pass off duties to my team. Seamus Beswick, right-hand man, he has great aspirations for Ironworks. You know, he keeps propelling and seeing this future. You know, he wants to get us a studio. And so there's those plans. There's those goals. But I'm not ready yet. You know, mentally, I'm not ready for something as big as that. But I need to, right? I need to look beyond the horizon and see how we can grow. That's why I need my team members, but I still have to mentor them and I still have to shadow them and make sure that they are going down the path that we need them to go and make sure that they get experience. And so I directed my third short film and that was a wonderful experience. I was able to just sit there and be director. And that was such a beautiful experience. I didn't have to think about this project as a producer you know, I didn't have to look into the camera angles as much. I had someone who I could rely on. And so the DP, the director of photography, and the first AD, the first assistant director, the three of us were the core. Mm-hmm. And we were able to see the same vision. It was our first time together. And the three of us were able to see the same thing. And that's that's people that you need to cling on to. So we'll be 
doing another project together. Seamus will be directing his written script and I will be co-directing and helping him think about the things that he doesn't need to think about and providing him that space to be the director, exactly what happened to me in my third short film. Mm -hmm. And so when people come in and become either associates or interns, do you have a conversation with them about the skills they have and the skills they want to develop and then make a plan for that? Every time that I bring on or get an application from someone, I talk about the five stages of narrative filmmaking. So that's screenwriting, producing, directing, filming, and editing. And I always have them tell me their top three. And so we cater and make sure that we are creating an individualized educational experience for all of our interns, for all of our team members, for our associates. Mm -hmm. That seems like a a real win-win for everybody involved. Absolutely. Um, I think figuring out what they want to pursue is really crucial in their growth. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about your clients for the documentary type films. You are focused on nonprofits and mission-driven small businesses. Why did you focus on that niche? My nonprofit work started the summer of 2012. And so I got to travel to Malawi in Africa to create content for the PNG's Children Safe Drinking Water program. And so that got me hooked. You know, I got to travel, I got to listen to stories, share stories and produce these short videos that are so concise and inspiring. And that is content that I still celebrate on my website. Working with nonprofits, they have a story to tell and a strong, wonderful story to tell. And they tell stories of inspiration and progress. And that's the key word is progress. Mm. We fail, we succeed. I've learned from my failures more than I've ever learned from my successes. And so that's why I I latch onto that word progress, because people can fall and stumble, but we learn from it. And so I don't want to talk about the successes. I want to talk about the progress Mm -hmm. and how they get there. So I started working with nonprofits. I was in... I. After I graduated and did my um, my internship at Malawi and Austin, Texas, we produced and put the videos together in Austin. And that was a wonderful experience. And so I moved to San Francisco, specifically sought out nonprofits to work with. And so the 1947 Partition Archive, they have a really great mission. They want to collect the oral history of those who experienced the 1947 partition. And that's when Pakistan and India was separated. Mm -hmm. And so we get to see and hear all these stories of violence and displacement. I wanted to be there and, and edit these videos. And so I was able to put together some videos based on the footage and the interviews that they were able to get. Um, And it made it on the New York Times. And that was really exciting. But I knew it wasn't my best work. And I had a lot to do with me not filming it. I think if I filmed it, it would skyrocket in content and in quality. That's why I'm kind of controlling (laughs) with my organization. I do everything from point A to point B. But that's the thing about Ironworks is I have to let go of that. Right. And I have to pass on duties and delegate. I read a book, The E-Myth. And in it, the writer talks about how business owners are wearing three hats. So manager, technician, 
and entrepreneur. So the entrepreneur is thinking about the future. The technician is present Mm -hmm. and the manager is overseeing the whole thing. And so wearing those three hats and juggling between those duties is really crucial in how to grow your business. And so now I have to think of myself as a manager. I've honed my skills as a technician and I've passed those experiences and shared what I can share. And now I have to think of myself as a manager. Mm -hmm. I'm always thinking about the entrepreneurship. Of course, that's how you grow is thinking about the future. But I know I can focus on that even more. And same thing with Seamus's idea of getting a studio and getting an office so people can come and identify with us and and see the branding that we've been able to create together. But I don't have the funds. I need money. You know, I need capital. And I think that's a lot of what filmmakers struggle with, for sure. But the thing is, we've been able to combine our resources. Daniel Brenner, he is my right-hand man. I would not have been able to run this business without him. And he's got all this lighting gear. He's got a really nice camera. And he he told me that it's been collecting dust. Mm -hmm. And I've known him since I first moved to Durham, North Carolina. I've known him since then. And we both connected and we realized, oh, we have this experience in filmmaking. Let's collaborate. And so it didn't, it took until 2017 to actually collaborate and get together. And he told me that I got him out of retirement. And I'm really glad that I was able to do that because he's very talented mm-hmm. and he loves this stuff. He loves it with all his heart. He taught for about 20 to 30 years in New York public schools. Using his experiences as a teacher was the perfect way to incorporate all these interns and associates. Him teaching about the gear, you know, what a C-47 is, or he calls it a bullet. What is an idiot walk? Uh, what is a dummy check? And so C-47s are actually simply clothespins. Um, <laughs> but the jargon is really important. Right. If you learn the jargon and you get on set and you start spitting out this jargon, they are the crew become very impressed because they think they, you're legit. They think you're legit, right? If you know the jargon, and yeah. so we teach them that um, lighting is a huge thing, and he's very talented in lighting. And I want to pass that off to our associates because I'm not good at it, right. but I want other people to be good at it, so I don't have to worry about it. But the thing is, with lighting, it is how you increase production quality by far. I use a lot of natural light. Mm-hmm. And my team members aren't experienced in lighting, but I want them to be able to gain that experience and be empowered to be able to do those types of things. So one day we'll pass that lighting duty to someone else and have Dan shadow them and make sure that they have a good grasp of what great lighting looks like. It's interesting because there are so many nonprofits and small businesses in this area They don't tend to be the businesses that have a large amount of money to pay for these types of things, which you mentioned are really important. I feel like sort of that's the currency of business these days are these short form videos about your work. How are you making that work? This idea that there are many nonprofits, but they don't have a lot of money and everybody needs uh, a calling card, which is a video form. So how we pick our projects is whether it has monetary or artistic value. And so actually one of our projects was with art classes. And I was talking about, okay, 
Let's talk about what you need first. I think that's the important part. This is a conversation. This is a relationship that we're building. So what do you need from me? The owner of the art classes, uh, we had numbers that kind of conflicted. But the thing is, I was able to sacrifice the monetary value because of the artistic value that I found in that in that project. We work with a lot of different budgets. We know that nonprofits don't have the money to be able to invest in media. But like you said, it's really important because if you're going to a nonprofit's website and you don't know what they're doing, right. even by the text, who wants to read text? People want to see videos. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's really important. I suggest to my clients that they look into media budget grants. I think that really alleviates their stress and they don't have to think about, can I fit this in the budget? And so we work with a lot of different budgets. We have said no to mm-hmm. projects. And I think that's there's a power to saying no. In Durham alone, there are 4,700 nonprofits. Oh, wow. That's five times the national average. Mm-hmm. And these stats were back in 2017. So can you imagine how many more have popped <laughs> yeah, up? I can't, yeah. <laughs> so my hope is with these videos is that these nonprofits can collaborate and get together and see what kind of good work that they can do mm-hmm. because there is overlap. And so it's really important that we get that message of the nonprofits out there. Is there a particular client that you were surprised Bye. I've had so many projects. Um, It spans from like a coding boot camp to art classes to a catering company. So those are some of the small businesses that we've worked with. Um, We did cooking classes for that catering business and it's called Zwayle's Mm -hmm. and I will name drop her. Um, She, I met her, she was catering for ReCity. She was like the go-to caterer and she had the best samosas that I've ever had. And I'm not exaggerating. I had the second best samosa in Malawi, in Africa. <laughs> so if you can imagine, like, this is authenticity yeah. at its, like, best. And so I think she she might be the first Zimbabwean restaurant, either in Durham, either in North Carolina. So she's paving the way. And I was very happy to, you know, be in that experience right when she was starting out. Mm -hmm. How do people, how do your clients react when you show them the final product? I work at Step Up Durham. They are my day job Mm -hmm. and I get to do a lot of public speaking and facilitating different modules that help job seekers get the employment that they, that they need. Step Up Raleigh, the, when they first started out about 25 years ago, their focus was on housing, but then they realized that employment is more crucial. And so employment leads to housing quite naturally. Step up Durham has been around since 2015. So it's a very, it's been around for a very short period of time, but it's accelerated. And we have classes that come in that at 18 people, which is like me, I've been working at Step Up Durham for three years and I've never seen class sizes that big. And so we are making an impact And I've made six different videos for them, showcasing partnerships with nonprofits such as the Green Chair Project, which provides really affordable furnishings for new homeowners. We also partner with Wheels for Hope. And so we featured a video on Shamia, who received a car blessing and really changed her life and saved her so much time and more time 
that she can invest in in her own career development and also to spend time with her family. Step Up Durham has a yearly big fundraising event. And so I've done videos for them three years in a row. The first year, technology fell through. Oh, no. So we weren't able to screen my video. And that broke my heart because I put so much work into it. And it's a great video. The second year, oh, man, I was supposed to go to Vietnam. And I did not do a good job of scheduling what I needed to do before my trip to Vietnam. My partner did not get his Vietnam visa in time. Oh, no. So we did not get to go. But Sarita Hill, the executive director of Step Up, she was the first person I called because of this project, this big looming project that I was not able to fulfill. And so I'm crying. But just before then, the day before we were supposed to go to Vietnam, she tells me that she's she was disappointed. And that was a blow to me. And so when I'm calling her, I realize there's some good in it that I can do this project now. And it's one of the best projects that I've been able to put together. And it has propelled us and shown to an audience of 200 to 300 people who are funders, potential funders, they can see this video and see all the good that's happening and see these stories. And so this year we did another video at the Impact Luncheon, which is this large fundraising event and had a great big audience. And this is when Ironworks was like fully fledged and we had been running for about a year and a half. And that year you could see how much progress that we made as an organization. Mm -hmm. We brought people to tears. And back in 2018, the video, one of our interview subjects was brought to tears. And honestly, that was like a milestone for me. Yeah. Because to get someone to cry in front of the camera, (laughs) that sounds so insensitive. But as a producer, as a producer, we want that. We want that raw emotion. We want to see something that we normally wouldn't see. And so I moved another person to tears recently. And that was like, yes. Because when people are crying, they tell a story that is so concise and so beautiful. And we get to connect with them in a level that we normally wouldn't. Right. Right. And you want, as a producer and director, you want to create an environment where people feel that kind of, that they feel safe enough to go there and they feel like they're really being seen and heard in a particular way that feels supportive and intense at the same time. So I, congratulations. (laughs) The vulnerability is what's key Mm -hmm. in telling a story. And it took me six years to get to that point. But in those six years, I want to give people shortcuts. Mm -hmm. That's my life's mission. Not only is it to, I create media that people can relate to. That's, that's my core, but I also want to give people shortcuts. And that's why I've gathered this team of filmmakers because I want to give them advice. I want to shorten the time that they have to spend to get to where I am currently So in that five, six years of experience, I can pass that off to my team and fast track their progress and their success. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that. I know that you are very committed to leading 
and teaching, as you just mentioned. Before we got on mic, you talked about a couple of the key words that you incorporate into your advice, and those were visualization and vocalization. Do you consider those helpful in these shortcuts? Visualization. You know, Will Smith and Jim Carrey did that. Hmm. And you see how far they've come? Oh, I didn't, I didn't know it, that and, about them. And Jim Carrey wrote a check to himself for a million dollars. I might have to fact check that. <laughs> but he knew. Right. He could see it. And if you can see your future, you can take the steps to get there. But also, in addition to visualization, you got to vocalize your goals. We actually met because I was sharing my story right, to someone that I hope to collaborate with. But you overheard me speaking. And so that's what I mean about vocalization. I think it's very crucial that we tell the world, the universe, this is what we're looking for and this is what we want. And so I highly encourage my team to visualize and vocalize. Those go hand in hand. And visualization... If you can see the end result, you can get there so much faster. You can plan out what are these goals that's going to take me to that point, right? So Seamus visualizes a studio for Ironworks. Mm -hmm. I can't see it though, but he can see it. Seamus is going to achieve the goals to get us there. And so even though I don't see it, he sees it. And he's going to help me take those steps. He's invested in Ironworks. Mm -hmm. And I need people, I need to surround myself with people like that. I've actually brought on an assistant editor. He was an intern last summer, and I've worked with him for this past year. And Francis Lay, he is very talented. He was able to edit five, six short films, student films. And he had that experience, and he's a great color grader. So it was just natural to bring him on board as his assistant editor. He will be the first official paid staff member of Ironworks. I don't get paid. This is out of my own heart and and my will. Because I believe in this messaging. I was already not getting paid. I spent <laughs> I spent five years not getting paid. I did all of this pro bono and on a volunteer basis. And someone actually told me, um, Steve from Root Media, who was our competitor, Mm -hmm. but is not. We're going to collaborate and we're going to help each other and support each other and collaborate and bring our forces together. So he actually told me pricing for films is like a bell curve. So the less you charge, the more fussy the customer gets, (laughs) the more fussy the client gets. But if you increase your prices, the less fussy they get. But if you reach a certain point, then they get fussy again. Right, right. And it just goes downhill from there. So you got to meet the happy medium. And so that's something that I'm passing on to my team members. There's one team member, she asked me, I want to do a music video for this band that I know. And I try to talk her into charging. She's like, no, I need this project. I need it for my reel. I need it as proof to show people that I can do something like this. You can still get money out of it. Right, right. It can be both. It can be both. You have the experience. You have the skills that they don't have. So why not charge them for your time? But she resisted Mm. because that's that's a huge thing that a lot of new, budding, aspiring filmmakers, they attach that adverb 
into the title of filmmaker. Mm. You are not an aspiring filmmaker. You are a filmmaker. But if you attach that to yourself, you're going to do stuff for free for years. I was an aspiring filmmaker, but now I'm an award-winning filmmaker. And that's something Sarita Hill from Step Up, she was the one that introduced me to people as an award-winning filmmaker. And that made me cringe. I didn't feel like I earned that title. And it has a lot to do with imposter syndrome. And so imposter syndrome is the feeling. It's a raw feeling that creatives struggle with. Because they feel like they don't deserve that title. Yeah. They put themselves down. They feel like they struggle with it. And so I still struggle with it. Even though I've gotten selected at several film festivals, I struggle with it um, because I feel like I don't deserve it. And how do you manage that feeling? I just watch my videos. (laughs) Because you have the proof. I have the proof. You have the proof. But... As a filmmaker, you're looking at little things like technical things that you wish you could have fixed or you wish you did differently. And you are your worst critic and I am my worst critic, but I have to let that go. And what makes me feel better about my imposter syndrome is when people affirm me. So I'm always asking people if they watch my videos, what'd you like? What'd you like about it? And they're like, "It, it was great. And they don't give me specific feedback. No, no. What did you like? Like specifically. (laughs) did you like? Tell me exactly what drew you in. And so affirmation is crucial. And so you got to surround yourself with people that actually care about your progress and that care about your filmmaking career. Um, I had asked my friend, Bradley Gibson. He is actually Simba on Broadway. Mm. And we all knew, like, He took theater classes. He was in all the musicals. And we all knew he was going to be a star. Um, But anyway, I asked him, I was like, have you seen my videos? And he said, yeah, I've seen every single one. And I was like, this guy's busy. (laughs) And he's seen my videos. He is one of my biggest supporters. And you never know who's watching. And you never know who's listening. And so it's really crucial that you don't down yourself. Mm. You don't degrade yourself in front of people. You know, I hear from my team members this self-deprecating humor. I'm like, don't talk about yourself like that because other people will see you that way. Well, and I think it ties nicely back into that vocalization and visualization, right? Because you're saying things out loud, you're sort of speaking them into existence and the way you see yourself can manifest. And so we really need, and I include myself in this bucket too, we really need to think about who we want to be rather than who we are afraid we are. And I think focusing the most energy on growth and potential will serve us all in the long run and and will also help other people know how to support us, right? So if you ask me, tell me specifically what you liked about my my videos, my films, then I can give that to you. But if you don't ask me, then I don't necessarily know that you need it. I want to swing through two more questions here. And the first one is around diversity in media, because I know that that's something important to you. And you wrote, quote, there's a lack of fair media representation of marginalized groups. So I aim to bump up that number as much as I can, end quote. Can you say more about that? Diversity 
is the answer to so many issues and so many problems. Diversity actually literally statistically makes everything better. Like, I'm not exaggerating. There are statistics backing that up and research backing that up. What I like to do, I am a screenwriter. When I'm writing these characters, I'm specifically inserting diversity in every character as possible. I think about, does this person have to be a white person? And I see a lot of casting calls that specifically ask for Caucasian. And really, and I, did, I would not have guessed that. Okay, and it blows my mind. Yeah, wow. And and because I feel like the word Caucasian was created to make white people feel better, <laughs> and it was created to make them feel like they're exotic, but they're not. <laughs> They're white people. Um, They're white. So own it. You have the privilege. So why not own it and leverage it and elevate the voices of other marginalized groups? And so I highlight the LGBT community as well. That is, uh, and that is a community that is dear and dear and near to my heart because I have friends and family who are queer Mm. And I think it's really important to see representation of ourselves in media. Um, There's actually this group called Liberation Station, and they have compiled a list of all these books, children's books, that feature kids of color. Is this a local group? Is this a Durham group? This is Durham. Oh, wow. Okay. And so they're Uh newish, right? And so that's important for Black kids to see because they don't see themselves And that's why Black Panther was so successful, because we got to see a life that we normally don't see. And for movie executives, for them to say, oh, no one wants to see a Black movie, that is not true. People crave those stories, because that's the thing about media is like, we want to see things that we normally never would have seen otherwise. And so to see these stories unfold in front of us. Um, But for me... You know, as I was developing as a filmmaker, I didn't like the idea of an all black cast. I didn't like the idea of an all white cast or all Asian cast. I wanted that mixture. I wanted that like true diversity, which is someone from India, someone from someone from Southeast Asia, someone who's black, someone who's white. That's what I want to emulate. And so when I'm writing these characters, I think specifically, I want this person to be this But when I was casting for my second short film, Roll Pin Punch, which is a story of two MMA fighters, both women of color, in a sparring match and the pivotal moments that led up to the fight, it ended up being an all-Black cast. And I didn't intend that. When I was writing the original script, I had a Hispanic woman, I had a Black woman, and I had an Asian woman. But as I was casting, realizing that there's so many black actors out there, but they don't get the opportunities because the casting calls ask for Caucasian people. Mm. So it's it's really important to have diversity. We get to see different expressions, different perspectives. You know, having an all black cast, it was really important for me to engage with them and learn and make sure that we're honoring these stories the best that we can. There is a, a really intense part. There is a moment where an abusive father punches his daughter. Holy smokes, yeah. And I got pushback. They're like, why can't you just slap her? But my thinking was, he doesn't see her as a woman. He sees her as his child. So he's okay with punching his child. And 
I didn't budge. I was like, I'm not going to do the stereotypical slap a woman. I'm going to do a punch. Mm. And it, I kept getting pushback. And eventually I told him my dad punched me in the jaw when I was 15 years old. So I know this is real. And I had to share that heaviness because it's that script was a part of me. It was part of my own personal experiences and the other fighter. So this was this was a fighter with an abusive father. And I had another fighter who had a homophobic mother. And that's a story that I've seen and witnessed. And so I was channeling these stories from my own family, and I might get some repercussions from sharing that. But I think it's really important because a lot of people can relate to it. Right. And they could attach themselves to that. And just because you don't have a homophobic mother or an abusive father, you can still relate to the idea that parents screw up. Right. This is their first time raising kids. And I actually told my um, my cousin about this, that grandparents have a second lease on life and, and they, they get, get a do-over. They get a do-over and they're usually better with the kids, <laughs> right? Usually that's the hope. Um, but they get a do-over and, you know, my, my dad and my mom are first time grandparents and my brother just had a daughter. Um, and my sister is actually, she's on her way. She's pregnant as well. So that's going to be another grandchild. And so my hope is that my father will, I'm scared. You know, I'm kind of worried with my father and my kids. I think there's that tension that won't ever let go. Mm-hmm. Um, so pulling from my own personal experiences, people can relate to it. Even though they never experienced that before, they can relate to it. Mm-hmm. And that's why there were so many people backing me up with this story. And that's what you need. You need that support. And that's where that's where diversity comes from. That's diversity where com- of life experience as well. Yes, mm-hmm. that's exactly it. Because we want to see things that we never would have seen otherwise. We want to hear stories that we never would have heard otherwise. And that's what media should do. If you see a story that you have also experienced, then you feel that kind of closeness. You don't feel so alone. If you see a story that you have not experienced, but you still relate to that other person, you still feel the emotion and the empathy, then you have your idea of the human experience expands. This idea that other people have had different life experiences than me. Look at this world, you know, in the variety of lived experiences that people have. And I think it really opens us up to be more compassionate and understanding. And also it takes us out of the center of our universe, right? To realize that there are other people out there with other stories and giving them equal airtime is really important. Yeah. My mother was not able to understand my first short film. It was, it was pretty dialogue heavy. There was a lot of English and my mother is a Vietnamese refugee. And so she wasn't able to enjoy my first short film. So my mother was actually diagnosed with breast cancer about two years ago. And that was a wake up call. But we were so positive and she was able to recover. And my second short film, Roll Pin Punch, has barely any dialogue. And this is a script that I wrote years ago. And it was more relevant than ever. Mm-hmm. And it was something that I could produce where my mother could really understand the story without hearing the English that came along with it. She could see it visually. 
that's kind of what I want to do. I want to traverse those language barriers because I struggled. You know, my Vietnamese isn't strong. Vietnamese speakers will tell me I have a very American accent, which I do. I didn't own it for a long time. I was like, no, no, but I definitely do have an American accent. You know, being a storyteller and being a really skilled communicator, but in English, that was very difficult to relate to my parents. And I never hear stories from them. I actually, my partner is a white man. He is an English speaker. He's also, he's also fluent in Spanish and Arabic, but my parents started speaking to him in English. My parents don't speak English to me. They only speak Vietnamese. And so that limits the stories I get to tell. And that limits the stories they get to tell. I don't know their stories. I don't know their history. They've been around for 60 years and I don't know their stories. And it's so unfortunate. And that language barrier really was tough on me because like I said, I'm I'm a great communicator in English. That's my job literally is to tell stories. And so my mom told stories to Ryan that I've never heard because she was speaking in English and she was speaking in English with him. And so I get to tap into these stories through a conduit Mm. through my partner. My plan is one day, Ryan, my partner, and I want to go to Vietnam, and we want to teach English, and I want to be fully immersed in the Vietnamese culture and the Vietnamese language. That might be literally the a huge way for me to learn, because my family members don't try with me, and my parents don't correct me, so how am I supposed to learn? And I stutter and I stammer because my parents used to tell Vietnamese speakers, new new people that we met, that I was bad at Vietnamese. And if you hear that mm-hmm. constantly, of course you're going to be bad, right? But it's funny because, like, when I drink, when I get <laughs> when I get drunk, the Vietnamese just flows so much easier because you're my, relaxed. <laughs> I'm relaxed. Right. But actually, I stopped drinking alcohol, so I don't get to tap in that in that anymore. But it's a it's a struggle. You know, that language barrier is really hard on our relationship. But I want to get better. I generally want to get better. And I need to seek that out. I need to find a Vietnamese tutor who can help me from from the very beginning. So I can let go of my butchered Vietnamese and start from scratch. It's a really interesting way to think about another kind of diversity, which is related to language and also related to the type of storytelling that we share. You mentioned the contrast between really dialogue-heavy film versus film that is very visual, predominantly visual storytelling as opposed to dialogue-heavy. And I think that's a really interesting. I know some people have challenges following language, like narratively following language. And so having a film that is really dialogue-heavy doesn't help them. It confuses things. So it's Interesting also to think about the different ways that people can access what they're seeing on the screen. You talked a little bit about what you might want to do. What do you hope that Ironworks will become, say, five years from now? I know, right? So much can happen in five years. That's exciting to think about. I think um, my hope is to get bigger budgets. 
um, massive budgets and I want to get paid for the narrative work that we do. And so I would love for people to approach us writers who want to produce their content. And the thing is, we work really well with low budgets and small budgets. So I think we will get there to the point where we have these massive budgets. But my hope is to maybe create like a scholarship program to have um, nonprofits apply to. And so and then we create their video content pro bono. Um, And that will create those opportunities for my team members. I think recently we I had two of my team members, two interns, capture footage of a dog fashion show oh. uh, led by Shana Yadid, who is an impressive dog trainer. I actually adopted my uh, Boston Terrier mix little adorable doggo. I adopted her from because of that experience. And so I let them film everything and I ran the interview and they edited it themselves and it looks awesome. Mm-hmm. And if I just let go, they can do stuff like that. Also, my hope is I want to create a directory. So I do want to expand. I do want to expand Ironworks, but home base is definitely Durham, North Carolina. There's nowhere else that I'd rather be. But I do want to expand to Oakland because the diversity is like, mm. and I'm sure the nonprofits follow along with the with that vein as well. And so I do want to expand to different locations, but I think I want to start with like an app. Um, that has a directory. And so I will kind of recruit filmmakers from universities, from just locally, recruit them, have them apply. I interview them and then I would spend a week producing a video with them. And we would have nonprofits apply as well for these pro bono services. So my hope is to expand in that way to connect with different communities. And so Students of the world, their business model has shifted and changed since I, that's what took me to Malawi in Africa. They were focused on international travel and nonprofit work. And now the year or so following that, they decided to open chapters in different universities across the country, and they would create videos locally. Hmm. And so I want to tap into that. I want to piggyback on that. So there are different organizations that are already doing the work that you want to do. So why not piggyback on them and support them Mm -hmm. and create even more opportunities? Because that's what happens when we collaborate. Co-creation comes from collaboration. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this conversation. I name dropped a lot. It was wonderful. No, I appreciate all that you do. Name dropping is key. And I can't wait to see what's next for you. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you. For more information and to become a patron, please visit artistsoapbox.org. For any questions or just to say hello, email us at artistsoapbox at gmail.com and check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.